Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is Josh Summers, and I'm very glad you're here today. Okay, today's talk, this is an episode where I'll be giving another of my Dharma talks from the Monday night sessions for the online virtual Sangha. And in this talk, I continue on with an attempt to contextualize the theme of awakening within the Buddha's own fourfold teaching, which really expresses his own awakening, called the Four Noble Truths. And one of the points I'm trying to convey in this series of talks is that the Four Noble Truths are not things to believe in or agree with. They're really uh, open reflections to, uh, to look more deeply into the nature of your own experience. And in doing that, uh, certain insights about the nature of suffering and the nature of the release of suffering start to become very clear. And this talk focuses on the second noble truth known as tana, or the, the, the truth of thirst or craving or desire as the root of our distress and sort of argumentation with the world. Um, and as I try to point out in this talk, uh, this, this theme, the, the theme of desire and skillful relationship desire, really is at the very heart of the Buddha's whole teaching on awakening. It's really the heart of which around which the entire path pivots. And as I share, I profoundly misunderstood this teaching to my own detriment uh, for many years. So I'm hoping that in sharing this, I can head off some of the difficulties and pitfalls that you might fall into yourself. Anyway, if you'd like to join uh, our Sangha and participate in the conversation around these themes, please head over to www.joshsummers.net forward slash Sangha, S-A-N-G-H-A. Sangha is simply a community of like-minded folks who value practices and, and teachings that remind us of our own innate wakeful awareness. This online practice group is just passing its two-month uh, month anniversary. It's been it was it was conceived of over the summer, and it was born in early September, and we're just two months into it. And so far, the feedback has been fantastic. People seem to really enjoy the the weekly themes, and then how those specific themes get threaded and woven into the the yoga classes, the Yin Yoga, the Yin Yoga Qigong, and the Yang Yoga classes that Terry and I teach. So this has been very gratifying to me personally and as well to Terry just to get the feedback from members and how much they feel connected to their practice and to a deepening of their practice as a consequence of their participation in the Sangha. So we're very happy about that and um, our doors are open to anybody else that might be interested. Okay, now without further ado, I give you today's talk, The Knowing Ungrasps Tana. The theme of this talk is a continuation of some of the themes that um, I've been looking into around the Four Noble Truths. And um, the reason I started with the Four Noble Truths is because, or been wanting to get into the Four Noble Truths, is because this is, in some ways, the first clear articulation that the Buddha shared after his awakening. 
um, when he rejoined his friends, he had five friends that he used to practice with. When he reconnected with them after his own uh, experience of, of awakening, uh, the, the Four Noble Truths is the teaching, is the w- way he articulated what he came to understand. And um, the reason I, I've been wanting to sort of root our practice within that framework is that I think this particular teaching puts spiritual practice in very human terms, down-to-earth human terms. Now, some of the language, the, the, the terminology, because it's coming from another country at another time, another historical period, um, in different language, some of the words will sound a little bit uh, um, like beyond where, outside of our grasp, let's say. It might seem like a little bit foreign or a little bit hard to grasp. So I want to try to, I'm trying to unpack these specific terms of the Four Noble Truths in a way that it's very understandable and relatable in terms of your own human experience. Because uh, the thing that I've always appreciated about the Dharma is that uh, it's it does have religious uh, elements to it, but at the heart of it, it's essentially a humanistic exploration of what it means to be you and then understanding what it means to be you, it gives us a, a sort of a roadmap or a, a, a framework to understand how to, you could say, tra- start to transcend types of conditioning that make life more difficult for ourselves and cultivate qualities of being that make life um, easier, that make the flourishing within life more accessible. So it's it's nothing beyond the ordinary uh sort of experiences we have as humans that we're, we're working with. Um, and whenever someone starts to talk about awakening or the other bugaboo word, uh, enlightenment, that can conjure all sorts of sort of beyond human experiences, you know, something that, that seems supernaturally uh, perfect or um sort of beyond the reach of us ordinary mortals, as I tried to say in the newsletter. And um, when, I, when I'm speaking about it, I'm trying to make sense of the term that in the context of the way the Buddha was speaking about it, because I think, again, the way he spoke about it, it's not something that is only for a select few. It's not something that you have to do you know, years and years and years of practice to realize. It's It's a dynamic or dimension of our experience right now that's always available when we learn to recognize it and and appreciate it Um, and then from recognizing it we can start to cultivate the conditions that allow us to sustain our our sense of being within that dynamic or within that that open space of, of freedom and I, I, when I a few weeks ago, when I started this theme, I, I began with not the first noble truth, but the third, because the third is a sense a taste of of this new dimension of freedom. And it, I, I I borrow a, a translation of the word for the third noble truth from the Thai forest tradition, um, and the, the word is naroda, which in Sanskrit and Pali often means cessation, and Particularly in the yoga tradition, the word naroda can can conjure up uh, very refined states of meditation where one's thinking process ceases. 
and and people tend to, in the yogic path tend to work very very hard to try to get their thinking to come to a, 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 a an, an arrested state so that other kinds of knowledge emerge from that cessation of thinking um, now that can happen within the the buddha dharma path meaning your thoughts you might have periods of thoughtlessness meaning you, your thoughts aren't functioning as normal but the way the buddha used the word naroda is that it, it's really a cessation of dynamics in us that cause life to be more difficult than they, than it needs to be so it's unnecessary psychological struggle resistance fighting arguing hoping wishing regretting all of that that makes life that sort of compounds the primary con- conditions of life that are hard like the like say physical illness or separation or difficult weather let's say With the, those ordinary conditions of life that are hard it's the it's the mental additional overlay on those that takes the form of resistance that makes life that much harder. So rather than seeing Naroda, the third noble truth, the realization of the end of suffering as some something that you might be privileged to experience if you're a good yogi and yogini for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, the teachings I received and, and the way I interpret what the Buddha is referring to is that this experience of Naroda is already here. It's open. It's here to be realized now in the, the, the heart of our practice and then ultimately in the heart of our life. And that to make it more, um, there's a pun on the term, to make the concept of Naroda more graspable, the pun is that, the, the Thai version of the word is, the Thai translation is reality without grasping. Reality without grasping. So what's here right now, there's something here right now that reveals itself as peaceful, easeful, content, when the mind isn't hooked by a conditioned habit of grasping. And my contention, as I try to say week to week, is that most of you, if not all of you, I'm pretty convinced already know this because you've done some yoga. And that yoga practice, the way it's taught, in, at least in the West, is you go, you go through your, your asana, and then at the end, you rest in shavasana. And there's a very delicious sense of well-being simply because the mind is temporarily freed of its habitual hankering for something else or wanting to get rid of something or some finding some some condition that's not satisfactory enough that you feel like you need to do something to get more of it or get rid of it or become somebody else that doesn't have a problem with it anymore. That, that all of that processing comes to a rest for a period of time, and there's a delicious, wonderful sense of ease that emerges. That's a taste. That's a very legitimate taste of neurota cessation. And then last week, what I tried to put on the map is what life is like when we're not experiencing Naroda, when we're not experiencing the re- reality free of grasping. Life is normally challenging, much more challenging. There's, there's, there's like a feeling of treading uphill or, or, or like slogging through snow, if you will, or just diff, it's diff, diff, it's the passage through life is difficult because there's things in the mind that are wishing it to be otherwise. Whatever's happening, there's things in the mind that wish it to be otherwise. 
And the Buddha referred to that experience of difficult to be withness. That that it's a, a phrase I can use: difficult to be with. The condition of difficult to be withness, where things are difficult to bear. He reused the word dukkha to refer to that. Just a simple sense of things are difficult right now. And uh, the the reason he sort of starts his whole structural structure of teaching around that word is that it's it's part and parcel of learning how to be free of it. If we don't fully take a very sober, calm look at the things in life that are difficult, we are sort of in a hedonic treadmill, always looking for an escape, hoping that, you know, another sensory experience or a, a getting rid of something, hoping some other condition is going to prove satisfactory. And so we're always, we're sort of chasing something constantly. And that's, that's what I think is, is, is referenced in this term samsara. It's another Sanskrit term. Samsara refers to a, a, a kind of a, a cyclical existence. It's often used to refer to a rebirth, a cycle of rebirth, where you get born from one life to the next as a samsaric cycle of existence. Uh, but we can use the term or we can think of the term more psychologically, which is and humanistically, which is the way I try to uh, approach it, which is to think of samsaric existence or the, the existence within a samsaric cycle as being um, one of compulsively chasing after things, which is compulsively chasing after something, hoping that when we get it or get get beyond it or get around it, then and then and then. And so it sort of sets up this whole um, model or, or, or framework in the mind where we see this, this palm tree way back in the back of the mind that we're just, we're moving towards that palm tree. At some point, we work hard enough, we paddle hard enough, we swim hard enough, we'll finally be able to get to that island and just lean back against it. And that's when we'll come to rest in our life. And that's a setup. That's a setup to see that, to think that it's always about getting to the next or getting beyond this. So if we start to open to the condition of unsatisfactoriness, there's a dynamic in us that emerges that we can get to know and become more familiar with as we practice connecting with our experience of meditation. Then we are able to look more deeply under the condition itself, like the, the experience of unsatisfactoriness, we can start to look below that condition and move into the territory of what's discussed and pointed at in the second noble truth or the second aspect of this teaching, which is the diagnosis of what gives rise to this experience of dukkha. What gives rise? What, what is the origin of unsatisfactoriness? And for this, uh, Diagnosis, the Buddha used the term tanha, T-A-N-H-A, tanha. And tanha literally means thirst, a thirsting or a craving, or often it's translated as desire, desire for something else. And when I, uh, you know, when I first encountered these teachings, I was reflecting on this, the, th the most formal 
uh, my first formal exposure to the Four Noble Truths occurred in a book that I read in my early 20s. I think I was home one holiday from uh, from college, and I went to the, the spiritual bookstore on Newbury Street in Boston, known as the Trident Bookseller Cafe. And they had this wonderful book called Buddhism Plain and Simple by a Zen teacher, Steve Hagen. I think that's his name. Um, and he went through a, a, a detailed expl- explanation around what these four noble truths point to and what they're describing. And I remember reading it when I got to that, that second noble truth, that desire is the root of suffering. It's like instantly every conflict in my life lit up around that reflection. I could see that whatever problem I had with anybody or myself, it was always premised on this desire for something else to be happening. And it made, it was like this, as one teacher of mine said, you know, the, the Dharma is, is a kind of a spiritual path born of the patently obvious. <laughs> it's like, it's just stating the patent obviousness of our experience. When we really look at it, we see that whenever we're unhappy, it's because we're, we're our mind is hooked by a desire for something else to be going on. So that was my first exposure to this this kind of a teaching, and it it really sort of awoke in me this desire to know what it would be like to come to an end. What what would it be like for this 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 desire? What it would be like to live desire free? What it would be like to be liberated from dukkha once and for all? And in my own life at that point, I, without really knowing it, I, 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 I went into, well, went down one of the, one of the avenues of spirituality that you could say is, that was going to lead to a, a dead end cul-de-sac. But of course, I didn't see that up front. Because when I realized that desire was the, the, the root of suffering, the origin of suffering, all I wanted to do was expunge desire from my, my mind my heart i just wanted it to uproot desire and if I, when i looked at sort of the classical meditative text whether they're buddhist or or even uh, yogic in the, from the yoga tradition there was that language everywhere i looked of uprooting the seeds of desire in my my unconscious using like using the technology of meditation to become so quiet that i could with wisdom could start to uproot and destroy, and this is the language of these texts, uproot and destroy the seeds of desire so they don't sprout and bear fruit ever again. And the cul-de-sac, that the avenue that I went down to that ultimately was the cul-de-sac was not dissimilar, and again, there's no, I have no grandiosity around this, it's just more, I think it's an archetypical mistake. But the archetypical mistake is to try to expunge desires so you know for a while as a college student i really embraced the the existentialist aesthetic of wearing black and you know sleeping on a minimal platform bed of a futon on the floor but having no art or posters on the wall and 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 slowly trying to kind of reduce my diet to the most bare essentials for for survival and nothing at all with a hint of pleasure or 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 savoriness in in the food um my social life started to tank i felt like those 
socializing and, and being gregarious was just a form of, of restlessness and tana and desire. So, you know, I started to cut off social, social connections. Um, and then, you know, I, after college, not knowing what else to do with myself, I, um, I kind of decided to go to Asia uh, to, to go find, find these teachings in, the, in their home, home countries. Um, and I was able to teach English in, in a certain, in a few places in Taiwan and, and I ultimately taught seventh grade in, in, in India, as I said, last, last week, but throughout my, my sojourn of Asia in India and Taiwan, I, I was like trying to throw everything else overboard as much as I can. So I tried to get everything I could carry. All my worldly possessions came down to what I could carry in a backpack um, and, uh, the, the kind of spiritual asceticism that I was going into seemed like a good, good, earnest way to put this teaching into practice. And I would say I was in that, that mode for maybe five to six years until I came home and picked up a booklet by a, by one of the monks that I mentioned last week, Ajahn Sumedho. What a wonderful exposition on the Four Noble Truths. And on the second Noble Truth, when he starts talking about Tana, he says, look, the Buddha described three forms of Tana, three manifestations of Tana, and we need to know about them all. We fail to know about them all. He's essentially saying we can fall into a pit, pit hole or a sand trap, pothole or a sand trap. And the first form of desire, the first form of Tana was the one that I was familiar with and the one that you probably are, are familiar with now too, which is the desire for sense pleasures. And that includes desire for anything pleasurable to do with the body, desire for anything pleasurable to do with the ears, the eyes, the nose, the mouth. So pleasant food, pleasant sounds, pleasant smells, pleasant sights. These would all be categorized under uh, kama tana or desire for sense pleasure. But within that category would, could also be classified any kind of thought or view or opinion that we cherish and cling to as a kind of sense pleasure for those kinds of experiences, those kinds of conditions. Any kind of um, mentally generated experience is seen as a sensory object. So thoughts are kind of a sensory object to the mind, just as sounds are a sensory object to the ears. So clinging to views, opinions, positions, identities, would all be seen as a form of clinging to a sense desire. And at that point, I thought, oh, I'm practicing. I'm, I'm, right, in, I'm right in the la right lane here. I'm in the right lane. I'm practicing in alignment with what the Buddha was teaching. Until I encountered the second two aspects of Tana. And these are the ones that I, I really want to make sure people People pick up their ear, pick up their ears around. The second manifestation of tana is called bhava or bhava tana, B-H-A-V-A -A in Pali. Bhava tana refers to the desire to become fill in the blank. And he, <laughs> there is no, there's no word or, 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 or phrase that comes after the verb become but it's simply the desire to become dot 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 anything other than what you already are and 
the the reason why that manifestation or that form of tana felt like the proverbial rug pulled out from under my my feet was because I had been practicing with essentially my whole practice was fueled by a desire to become a person who didn't have desires. And I can tell you, I was none the happier for it. And, and uh, the periods of time where I had a residency back at my family of origin house, when I moved home for a little bit here or there, I can tell you my mother and sisters also didn't find me all that easy to be with when I was trying to get rid of all sense, my desire for sensory pleasure. Um, but it, it's an important one to catch and it's an important one to hear about. And this is a very important one to start to recognize when it arises within your practice, when there's a desire to become somebody other than you are, or to become somebody that doesn't have desire or to become somebody that, um, is, is more compassionate, less anxious, more resolved, more awake. All of those all the, the desires that are categorized under this desire to become are essentially are predicated on the idea that we have to do something now to become something better than we are in, at some future point. That what, what, whatever we are now is insufficient, is inadequate, it's incomplete. And so we're, it's a sort of a self-improvement campaign to become somebody who doesn't have the things we don't like about ourselves. As, as one form of it. But the reason, again, I started with Naroda, cessation. Is so we all have a reference point that that experience of cessation, this experience of reality without grasping, is here now. It's not arrived at at a future moment. It can only be accessed it can be only be recognized it can only be appreciated and experienced now so if there's if there's a, as a if there's a mechanism in our mind that's saying i have to do this practice now so that at some point in the future i'll feel naroda we're like the um or the donkey who is hooked up to a cart that has the, the, the fishing rod with a, with a, with a, with a carrot hanging dangling in front of its mouth. It's moving, moving, moving towards that carrot, but the more it moves looking for the, trying to get closer to the carrot, the more the carrot is always that much further, that distance ahead of the, the mouth. So I'll be encouraging you tonight to be open in your experience to when does that impulse or when does that condition of I'm practicing to get away from something to be, become somebody else, when does that come up and how does that feel when you notice it? And it's, it's, it's not bad. It's actually very good practice to start to recognize this. So the, don't, don't misunderstand me here. Like recognizing that I'm practicing be, to become, I'm feeling that I'm trying to become something else. That has to be admitted into consciousness to be known so that it can be released. Seeing it is not validation that you're a bad yogi or yogini. Just like seeing the desire for 
um, a higher cushion to have less of a numb sensation in your foot is not a sign that you're a bad yogi or yogini. All of the elements of this fourfold teaching will become known more clearly as you practice more. The dukkha will become more, more visible and, and vivid. The tana, what I'm speaking about tonight, that will become more visible and, and noticeable. And then also you'll start to appreciate in more of an ongoing way what it's like when those conditions cease. Feel the reality of non-grasping. The third manifestation of tana that is listed in this, in this teaching, these are really just three facets of the same uh, dynamic of desire. But the third element is, is referred to as vibhava tana, and that's translated as the desire to annihilate, the desire to get rid of. And it's really the flip side of kamatana, the desire for sensory pleasure. So when we're trying to get rid of something, whether it's a sensation, a sound, a thought, a view, a, a self-image that we have, like I am such a reactive person, I have to get rid of my reactivity. All that would be classified as this kind of vibhavatana which also is predicated, again, the central predication, the central um, motif here is that is it essentially comes down to a conditional statement. So this is the, the big thing I want to really emphasize here is that desire itself, please hear this, desire itself is not the problem. Because if, if desire for sensory pleasure was the problem, we could just get rid of it. But the third noble truth, or the third aspect of, of, this, of this, uh, uh, this reflection is saying the desire to get rid of something is also a, a cause of, of suffering, this cause of dukkha. So it's a little bit, it's a catch-22. We, we can't grab onto something, we can't get rid of something. What can we do? The first thing we need to do is to really feel the conditional, or the conditional strategy that our minds habitually engage with. And the conditional strategy, I'm calling it a conditional strategy because it, in, in English, the sentence structure that articulates this strategy is, is a conditional statement. And the conditional statement says, if X, then Y. So with, with sensual pleasure, if I get that curry, or if I get that ice cream, if I get that slab of chocolate, if I get that weather pattern, the day that I like, that perfect 68 to 73 degrees, not too humid, nice breeze, crisp air, if I get that weather, then I'll be happy. So it's the if-then, that's the conditional strategy. If I become, then I will. If I can only do, if I do two months of retreat in Nepal, then I know I'll get some attainment and insight. If I practice every day for an hour, then I'll have a legitimate practice that I can be proud of. Then I'll become the meditator that I dream of being. You can fill in some, your own blanks. 
if I only get rid of the scratchy throat, if I can only get rid of my headache, if I can only get rid of my incessant worry about something, I couldn't get, only get rid of conditions, then I'll be happy. So the, the issue with desire is not the desire itself. It's the way the desire gets situated within a conditional strategy of the mind. Put more simply, put a little bit more simply, desire is not the problem. It's the way we habitually cling or grasp at the desire for our satisfaction. So it's the grasping. And this is what, you know, uh, for those of you that are uh, not on, on the video, you won't see this, but I'm holding up a little pen here. So when my, my fist is tight, I can hold on. This is the grasping. Non-grasping, as I tried to say before, just simply means opening the fist, opening the mind up. The condition that I was grasping on is still there. I can use it when I need to. I don't need to get rid of it. But I have a very different relationship to this condition now. This is one of this is a condition born of grasping. I'm holding on to, to very tightly. This is going to cause me a lot of pain if I hold on because it's going to change and move, and then the friction of that movement and change is going to create an argument with reality in my mind. I can let it be. Things can come and go. I can use them when they're there. I can put them down when they're when I don't need to use them. I can have a much easier, fluid, less friction, um, friction laced relationship to my experience. So to, to, to sort of conclude this short reflection, I want to try to present a way of thinking about how to apply working with Tana in practice. And to do that, I want to just acknowledge that most of the time we think we, we practice again from a sense of self we practice as 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 if we're the meditator that is going to do something in the meditation to bring about a resolution to our distress. So it's like the egoic from the egoic level, we think the ego is going to somehow pull the meditative spiritual levers just right so that whatever's bothering us comes to comes to a resolution that we can let go but that 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 way of engaging with practice is is just the ego trying to get rid of something in a way so the this may not resonate or make sense so much tonight but i hope it will come, become clear over subsequent weeks and it, this will re return to something i've already been teaching earlier in the in the in the fall but the resolution is not, as the Buddha found, in trying to get rid of something or to indulge it or to get beyond it. The resolution is in knowing the condition as it is. The resolution comes not from fulfilling whatever statement the desire has. The resolution comes about when we start to rest as the knower of the condition in our being. And this is, this is I'll, I'll probably pick up on this more next week and I'll tell the fuller story. But the night of the Buddha's own awakening, as, as, as the story has it, 
he sits down under a tree and 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 um and uh forgetting the name of the state where um Bogaya is, but he sits down on a tree in Bogaya. It's Uttar Pradesh. Um, and he vows not to wake up, or not he vows not to get up until he attains full enlightenment. And over the course of the night, the 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 um sort of the personification of the of the demonic, the, the Buddhist version of a devil, appears to him several times, trying to persuade him, trying to scare him, trying to tempt him from his seat. And I'll pick up those specifics next week because they're, I think they're, they're very, very much human experiences that you'll all be able to relate to. But each time the, 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 the Buddhist devil, which is really just a projection of his own mind in the, in the mythology, but each time the, the devil appears, and the devil's name is Mara, M-A-R-A, the Buddha simply says, I know you, Mara. That's all. That's all that happens. I know you, Mara. The Buddha doesn't say, "Wow, you're right. If I if I'm going to be if I want to be happy, I really should indulge all those sensory pleasures that you're tempting me with." He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, "Oh, you're right. If I if I'm going to become a uh, an awakened person, I really have to be uh, deal with my fear and get rid of my fear that you're presenting with me." He doesn't say that either. He simply says to whatever. Mara present, he simply says, I know you, Mara. And in the mythology, every time Mara is known, there's a kind of transformation that occurs where the, the arrows that Mara's army are shooting at the Buddha, those arrows turn from, from sort of, I'm trying to think of a clever way to say this, arrows could be uh, instruments of death, those arrows transform from instruments of death to flowers that land at his feet, at the Buddha's feet. So the things that we think we need, the, the, the whole dynamic that actually generates suffering, the, the clinging, the grasping after desire for something, becomes the very condition that liberates when we understand it through clear knowing. When I, I'll briefly mention here, when I was working with the, the Burmese teacher of Saida Upandita, uh, it, was, it was the longest retreat I've ever done for two months. And there was one interpersonal drama, let's just say, that I could not rid my mind of certain hours in the morning right before breakfast from like 4 a.m to 6 a.m my it was just an obsessive thought loop that would go and go and go and i couldn't get to stop and it was driving me nuts and i went to the upandita and i said how can i let go of this how can i let go of this thing that doesn't stop like clockwork from 4 a.m to 6 a.m and he said something that really affected me. He said, he said, you don't have to let go of it. That's not your job. Your job is to understand it, to see it clearly. If you see this clearly, I'm extrapolating a little bit. He said, wisdom will let it go. You don't have to. 
So in practice, rather than trying to do something, this is what we, we, get, we can get into trouble with, with techniques, where we try and do something to make something go away, that puts us into, we like we bounce from one level of like craving desire, sensory desire to the, another, we get kicked into the other side of desire of trying to get rid of something, or kind of a cat chasing its own tail. So rather than trying to act upon the desire from a sense of me doing something to bring a resolution, Upandita and the Buddha seem to be saying, simply know a desire as a desire. Know it fully, admit it into your consciousness, let it do its thing, and observe what happens. And in the knowing, as you shift into the dimension of you that knows, this, uh, this dimension of awareness, which I spent several weeks pointing to for a while, shift into the dimension of knowing, suddenly all of the conflict, the rub of resistance and, and, and kind of momentum of being pushed and pulled can fade or will fade. And this is sort of completely counterintuitive. Normally, I was trained most of my life that there's a problem, do something about it. Don't just sit there, do something. And now it's this, this path is saying, there's a problem with something. Don't just, what does Sylvia Bernstein's book say? Don't just do something, sit there. Sit there and watch it. Rest as the knowing of desire for sensory pleasure, desire to become, you fill in your blank, desire to get rid of. And as you rest as the knowing, just this, this clear quality of awareness in relationship to what you're experiencing, observe how things play out from that position. So I'll pause on my talk there and we'll shift into the sitting and then we'll open up for about 20 minutes or so of questions and discussion. So bring yourself to a comfortable position that you'd like to meditate in. And we'll start. In some ways, the facets of the second noble truth are often what I try to communicate at the beginning of a formal practice when I set up the meditation. We begin 
our practice with the intention of connection, connecting to the way we are, connecting to the conditions of our moment-to-moment experience. Not to change those conditions, not to preferentially seek certain conditions. So we're not trying to get special things to occur, which would be a form of sensual desire, craving or clinging to sense desire. For If we're practicing to bring about a particular state or a partic- particular uh, experience to have. And we're also not, in, in our connection to our experience, we're not practicing to become anything other than what we are. And then with the third aspect of desire, in the, in the third aspect of tana, this is where we, we could be a little more careful and I would encourage a kind of prudence on this one that assuming you're, you're not experiencing something that's causing injurious pain physically or emotionally, We don't have to practice to try to get rid of anything. The caveat there is that if things do come up that are either causing physical or injurious pain on the level of the body, or if you feel flooded by any kind of psycho-emotional pattern, I encourage... uh, a strategic work with that where you might shift a little bit, shift your body some or adjust your body or on the level of psycho-emotional difficulty, open your eyes or listen to sounds for a while. It's a way of playing your psycho-emotional physical edges. So from the beginning, we're not, we're not trying to alter what happens. We're not trying to change the course of events of what occurs. Through gentle, receptive, kind connection. We're all opening to the very ordinary terrain of what it's like to be us or what it's like to be you. And in taking this calm, curious 
look at what it's like to be you. Particularly if we're exploring our experience with reference or some degree of reference to this fourfold teaching that the Buddha gave around the experience of difficulty, the experience of unsatisfactoriness, the causes that perpetuate or proliferate that experience of unsatisfactoriness, namely grasping after desire. This exercise is, an, is the activity of compassion. Compassion defined as the desire to free oneself or others of suffering. So this evening, as we sit quietly together, the basic instructions remain the same. Suggestion to begin with a relaxed receptivity to you, to your environment, to your inner world. Just a gentle, friendly kindness towards your moment-to-moment -moment experience. If you find it helpful and supportive, you can avail yourself of a perch upon which you can let your attention rest from time to time. Good perches tend to be neutral experiences that don't, um, don't involve a lot of performance. So something like the, the contact of your hands resting on your lap, the simple awareness of just the points of contact that can be a, a very good functional perch or the awareness of your, your sit bones on the, on the cushion or on the chair, or the way your body sits in, into the seat that you're in. That can be a good perch. Or if you've used a mantra or used the breath or use sounds even, you can use any of those experiences as perches. Perch is a point of inclusiveness, great inclusiveness, where we can include everything else beyond the narrow patch of the perch. So there's room in this practice for every thought, every opinion, every memory, every fear. 
space for it all. And as I've said in previous weeks, part of what goes on, as we said, is that the mind will drift. And in many systems of meditation, there's a lot of kind of teaching capital presented as a way to kind of minimize drifting. And I take somewhat of a sort of a contrarian position with regards to drifting. I think it's actually in the drifting state that aspects of ourselves are revealed. Patterns of being get revealed in what we drift into. And it's often when we listen back into those drifting states that we can see a dynamic of Tana at play. So the friendly okayness towards drifting, letting yourself drift, and I'm going to be quiet so you can drift. When reality calls you back, when something in your body, your mind, or your environment prods you into a wakeful position again, where you know you're awake and you know that you're here. Before going back to the perch or for, before really doing anything specific, just take some time and look around. What have you awoken to? Have you awoken to the experience of cessation? Where reality as it is, is free of grasping? Have you awoken to that dynamic where things are just calm and content and clear? And if so, relish that. Just settle into it, relax into it. Or have you awoken to some manifestation of distress? Nothing's happening. I don't get it. This is confusing. Where am I? Who am I? How much longer? I'll leave the, the litany of distressing kinds of thoughts at that point. But if you do feel some dynamic of distress, again, vital terrain of this path, I would suggest to turn towards it gently with your interest and curiosity. And start to apply some of these teachings. Is there desire present? And if so, what can I make of this desire? Is it a, is it a desire for something else? Is it desire to become somebody else? Or is it desire to get rid of? 
whatever you discover, you can silently observe it. That's the essence of it, just to, just to simply know the condition of desire and how desire functions in your, in your being, particularly when you're grasping after it. But if you appreciate the articulated tool or the tool of articulation, where you speak softly and silently what you've come to see, You could use a similar sentence structure to last week's theme with dukkha, where I said you could just simply say, this is dukkha, and it's like this. This week, you might use phrases like, this is desire, and it's like this. Or this is grasping, and it's like this. And whatever manifestation that you become aware of, as it becomes known in your mind, with patient awareness, just observe what unfolds once you're in the position of knowing. Okay, that's today's talk. I hope it is a benefit to you. I hope it supports and enriches your practice and life. And again, if you'd like to join us, you can do so over at joshsummers.net forward slash sangha. And also this week, I just want to announce that I will be releasing a long form interview with the psychotherapist, Judith Blackstone. And Judith has really a fascinating unique synthesis of embodied awareness, spiritual awakening, and the healing of trauma. A few of you have been after me to have Judith on the, on the podcast, and I'm really excited to share that episode with you in a few days, so stay tuned. Okay, I look very much forward to seeing you in the next episode, and thank you for your practice, thank you for your attention, and thank you for your presence. Stay strong and practice on.